Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Project Brief. I'm your host, Delta, and I've got my co-host go with me today. Jay Ringo. Hello. Do you like Batman? Uh, yeah, I like Batman. Good, because we're going to be talking about Gotham Investigators today. <laughs> Gotham at Home, the Boink Project? Very exciting. Actually, sort of. <laughs> oh, but today we are going to be looking at uh, climateprediction.net. And um, they have a lot of sub-projects, and Gotham's one of them, so <laughs> we're going to look at that. But um, I'd, I'd like to read out my intro I posted today, because it's pretty, it's a big, it's a big mouthful. So, this is a lecture about globally observed teleconnections and their role in representation hierarchies of atmospheric models. It's a simple and super fun experience and learning about what's out there and what you could be supporting with just the click of a button. And that's what the project brief is. Uh, I ask that uh, as we get into the discussion, uh, leave all questions to the end where we can talk about the project and people can ask questions. Uh, today I'll be talking about the project and uh, also be teaching a little bit of how weather systems work, along with uh, what climateprediction.net does, its sub-projects and all the fun stuff. So I think before we get started, we should probably disambiguate weather and climate because a lot of people get this area wrong. Weather is actually the short-term um, patterns in the weather, so whether it rains in the next couple of days or um, whether it's sunny on the weekend so you can go out for Australia Day. Um, whereas climate is long-term trends. So looking at, for example, the, I don't know, the increasing temperature of the planet or uh, taking a look at uh, long-term trends of cyclone patterns, for example. And it's an issue in science at the moment because we don't fully understand climate. And that's exactly why climateprediction.net exists, because climate prediction produces the models for us to try and predict the, the coming future. So, for example, the, um, you might be able to predict the next year with a small degree of accuracy, um, the next decade with a decreasing amount of accuracy, and as you go on and on, you get less and less accurate. And the reason why this is, is because climate is what's called a chaotic system. And no, it's not an evil system. It, it just means that it's really hard to predict. And the best way for us to sort of figure out what it might do next is to make a model. And by definition, a model is just something that sort of represents something that we're looking at. If you're familiar with the butterfly effect, or even on my post that I did for the project brief, I have uh, a little gif of a double pendulum. And it shows pretty well what a chaotic system does and what it sort of looks like. It's really hard to sort of see what this stuff does. And so as I said before, predicting the weather, I mean, we can get some pretty accurate forecasts for like the next couple of days, but for the next week, for the next month, it's a lot harder. So, so what you're uh, telling me, what you're telling me here is whether the weather be hot or whether the weather be cold, climate doesn't care because it's a long-term trend. Yes, but <laughs> what we can do with the climate trends is that we can take a look at the averages. So we can sort of predict what it might look like on average, but that doesn't predict day-to-day -day weather, because day-to-day weather, especially in Australia, you could get um, a 40-degree day today. That's like 100 freedom units for you guys. Um, and then you could probably get like a cold change coming in and the temperature drops by about um, 10 degrees Celsius in less than an hour. So it's, it's really wacky, but with climate models, we can actually predict the average. So now let's talk about what your computer actually does. So in climate prediction.net, you're doing what's called climate modeling. Now, these climate models are, 
actually extremely complex. So basically, it represents the Earth as a three-dimensional sort of grid. So you have all the Earth on the x-axis, and then you have all the atmosphere coming out of the x-axis. And th these models are so complex, they even take into account volcanoes exploding and the heat that they produce and where that heat goes and balancing thermodynamics. They also take into account, um, now they do uh, greenhouse gas emissions uh, from, I guess, just uh, expected um, cities' output and city growth into the future. And um, yeah, they also take into account greening of the planet, they take into account oceans, they take into account clouds, they take into account icebergs, they take into account absolutely everything. And now, the reason why we need to compute it is because these models are essentially random. In a chaotic system, if you start off from one situation and then move just a little bit to a different situation, you have a completely different outcome in the future. And so that's exactly what these models do. They randomize the starting positions and randomize all the different parameters, and they try and fit uh, they try and make sure and they simulate the weather of the over history to see if it matches up with history. And then if it matches up with history, then they continue that model into the future uh, because seeing that it's matched up with history, we think it might continue like that way in the future. So we pro we um, project that model into the future and then it gives scientists an insight into what might actually happen. Now, scientists don't uh, make their claims off of just one model. They gain an aggregate of models to see what their similarities and differences are. And so with those similarities and differences, you can get more or less like the most predictable scenario. So let's start talking about the subprojects in climateprediction.net because this project, like World Community Grid, is made up of a lot of subprojects. There's no just like one single, oh, you do just this thing. They all have their all, all the different subprojects, and I've only got a few of them here because there's so many there. Um, we'll leave Batman for the end. We'll leave the best to last. Oh, I'm um, sitting here at the end of my chair, man. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it in. Bring it in. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's one called A-Flame, which uh, tracks the Amazon bushfires. I think if you've listened in the news uh, previously, the Amazon had some pretty bad bushfires, just like Australia. And uh, what these simulations do, they are essentially a form of climate simulation, but they're a more higher resolution. So it's like zooming into a small portion of the Earth and doing a more detailed model on that particular area there. And so with the Amazon bushfires, um, this climate model essentially simulates fire spread. So it predicts the evolution of fires and it predicts the evolution of essentially varying models of climate on the Amazon and how that might affect the bushfires. And uh, that is a project that is currently running. So if you go on to climateprediction.net, you can actually get some work units for Aflame. Now, uh, another one that they have lots of, but uh, is not currently active is Weather at Home. Now this sub-project comes in only in specific times. So only when they have like some, uh, if scientists have like this one specific problem that they want to see or one um, specific idea that they want to test, like for example, most of them are about climate change effects on uh, extreme weather. They'll come in with a bunch of data, they'll check the historical models and run a detailed simulation, take all the data and then figure out what to do with it and maybe make a conclusion. And so in this project, it's actually very interesting because it's very um, geographically specific. So, for example, I think one of them was the 2015 U.S. drought. I think you might know a bit more about that, Jay Ringo. I don't. 
Wow. Because I remember seeing on there, there was, I think there was, unless unless it was a different nation, I'm pretty sure the US, um, it, it said uh, weather at home, US drought 2015. Maybe maybe Jim can <laughs> give a bit of insight to that. But um, yeah, so you can get work units that go within your country. So it's a it's a pretty niche sort of sub-project and it comes in and out every now and then. And maybe you can even get a work unit for your nation. You can compute um, climate data to see if uh, climate change had an influence on the extreme weather that your nation experienced. And uh, yeah, as I said, this project comes and goes. So they might have work, they might not have work. It'll come in and out as as the as scientists need the data. Uh, okay, so now, J- uh, Jim, you caught me right as soon as I was going to start talking about Batman uh, because oh, there is sorry. a project, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure it's still running. It's called Gotham, and I I pulled up the acronym before. It stands for Globally Observed Teleconnections and Their Role and Representation in Hierarchies of Atmospheric Models. Oh, it's what a beautiful <laughs> acronym. <laughs> yep, they, they have some, that, they that's have some a, fun That's a backronym if there ever was one, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, to put that into perspective, all they're trying to do with this is they're looking at weather patterns such as the El Nino or El Nina uh, ocean dipoles and other weather patterns around the world and investigating their accuracy. So climate bureaus around the world will submit their data and their predictions on these sorts of patterns. And what Gotham does is it investigates their accuracy, checks whether they're accurate, and then feeds um, the data back to those bureaus so that they can make another judgment. And the great thing about this is that Gotham has investigators, <laughs> not to investigate crime, but inaccuracies. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's the Batman for you. Do they have a Robin? Maybe they have a Robin. Unfortunately not. <laughs> I mean, they might have a Robin in their team, but I don't know if they do anything. Okay. Um, anyway, I promised uh, to give some information on basic weather patterns. So, um, if you take a look in my post, and I'll get the image now, I included a synoptic chart of Australia, of course, um, for, I think that was yesterday. <laughs> oh, no, the day before, I think. Yeah, the, day, uh, the day before. I clipped that chart, um, which is a synoptic chart, and it shows basically the weather patterns for essentially the coming week. Now, you might see these on the TV and you think, oh, low pressure system or L, a thousand something. It's just numbers. It doesn't matter. It's actually quite interesting. Um, you might be, if you've watched the weather enough, and I've, I'm a nut about meteorology now, uh, if you watch the weather enough, you usually see, see what's called the low pressure systems and high pressure systems. And in that chart, they're depicted as L and H. Now, you might be thinking, because most weather stations depict low pressure systems as blue and um, high pressure systems as red, you might think, oh, high pressure systems being this hot air coming in. It's actually the complete opposite. So what these pressure systems are is essentially you get low pressure air around, um, in this case, in the chart that are provided around the um, land mass of Australia, which means that there's less air compared to the high pressure systems, which have a lot more air. Now, in low pressure systems, they, in the southern hemisphere, they turn clockwise. I've got to get this right. <laughs> in the northern hemisphere, they, uh, sorry, yeah, in the northern hemisphere, it's the complete opposite. So in the southern hemisphere, low pressure systems spin clockwise, high pressure systems spin anticlockwise, and then opposite in the northern hemisphere. Now, what low pressure systems typically do is they attract 
moisture from the ground and they pull it up into the sky, which means that usually around low pressure systems, you get rain, which is why in summer in Australia, you typically get the wet season because the land mass gets hot, hot air rises, pulls up the air from the from the ground up into the sky, causing low pressure system, uh, causing a low pressure system on the ground. And with all that moisture in the sky, it condenses and turns into rain. Um, as for high pressure systems, quite the opposite. You have cold air coming from the upper atmosphere, uh, pushing down onto the earth, and that spins uh, anti-clockwise. And usually, um, high pressure systems can be responsible for rain. And I should mention, we had pretty much almost the wettest week in Australia. Um, there were some places that got around, what was that, I think, 750 millimeters of rain. I don't know if you want to convert that to inches, Jeringa. Got it. I'll be right back. <laughs> okay. How many well, we- 770? Yeah, 750 millimeters in one week. We're looking at 29 and a half inches of rain in a week. Woo, it's a lot of rain. Yep. That uh, actually, I should mention also um, that all of our um, fires in New South Wales are, are either extinguished or contained. So we've done a pretty good job. There's no more emergency fires, and we should be um, finishing up our fire season pretty soon. But uh, either way, if you take a look at the synoptic chart I've provided, there's a high-pressure system of New Zealand. Now, because high-pressure systems in the southern hemisphere um, push the air anti-clockwise, you have an onshore moist airstream coming into New South Wales or into the eastern coast of Australia. So you'd usually think that high-pressure systems don't produce produce rain, and essentially they don't because they push all the air down and they get rid of the moisture in the air. But if they have, the, if you have the wind from the high-pressure system pushing into a low-pressure system, then you have the moisture that comes up from essentially the sea, and you get all this rain. And I, I'm just a I'm a meteorological nut, so I, I love all this stuff. <laughs> and um, yeah, so that's just a quick explanation of low and high-pressure systems for whenever you take a look at the news. Um, usually in summer, over the land masses, you get lots of low-pressure systems. As I said earlier, the heat causes the air to rise, causing low pressure on the ground. And uh, yeah, as for you can actually see in that synoptic chart, a tropical cyclone, uh, which didn't hit Australia. We've had three cyclones, only one of which hit Australia, <laughs> but we didn't have that much damage. It wasn't a big cyclone anyway. Um, those tropical cyclones are actually interesting. They're what are called intense tropical lows, which means that it's a really, really, really low pressure system. So it brings lots and lots of air up from the ocean, which means it's bringing up lots of moisture to feed all those clouds in the cyclone and causing huge disruptive uh, winds and what's called convective flows as the air flows up and around and then back down to the earth. And I think that's enough for my uh, my weather rant. (laughs) Uh, Does anyone have any questions about climateprediction.net or even synoptic charts? I'm happy to talk about synoptic charts more. I'm curious about uh, CPDN and uh, what Jim was talking about. Jim mentioned that the uh, the weather models essentially are wrong and things are going faster and more intense than predicted. So with CPDN, when they're trying to do this uh, climate prediction, how do they do they account for that? Or like how far into the future can they go? Because in a chaotic system, the further away you get from initiation, the more difficult it is to predict. So like, how, how do they rationalize that? Yeah, so um, with the climateprediction.net models, uh, as I said before, they take into account a lot of stuff. Like they take into account even the minuscule stuff, like just volcan- like volcanoes going off. Now, as you said, it is a chaotic system, so it is definitely hard to predict. And um, I think it's down to the fact that the way that the models work, 
um, is simply saying, oh, because we've looked at all these past trends and our model has brilliantly um, matched those past trends, our future trend is going to be relatively correct. In a chaotic system, that's not necessarily the best way to go. It's um, as without using AI, it's probably the best way to go, but um, it's not exactly the best. Um, exactly, just the chaotic system. So unless we have mathematical equations to equate all of these and everything like that, we really can't predict it. But in the end, what these models come down to are mathematical predictions. But in reality, it's just like how we see the universe in physics and um, how sometimes our math doesn't actually work and we have to constantly revise these models and as climateprediction.net does it actually changes the variables sometimes so for example one of them might uh, one of the models might predict uh, humanity producing more uh, greenhouse gas emissions or one might produce society uh, one might predict society producing less greenhouse emissions and they tweak those parameters all the time to make sure that they got a good range of um, predictive models to see what might happen and so with that you can actually get probably a worst case and best case scenario. And so in that, you can predict somewhere in the middle. It just depends how wide that is as to how accurate our models are. Yeah, I think a good comparison for that is uh, if people look at hurricane prediction paths and the cone of probability. So you have a weather prediction that's sort of like the cone of probability where the eye of the tornado, wow, the eye of the hurricane is likely to go between the in the cone somewhere. But you know, who knows? There's a lot of variables about where exactly that eye is going to go. And it's the same thing with climate predictions. Like, yeah, we can predict with relatively cert relative certainty out to like five years, 10 years. Uh, but the further you get into the future, the more you're going to have to make different models and then take an average of your models to try and figure out where this, this stuff is going. And I think, like you said, it's just really difficult. <laughs> and you, you, you raised a good point there about the cone of probability. So just for everyone who usually, who's not pure scientists and everything like that, who just probably watch the news and see where the, where the, or as, uh, uh, where the hurricanes or cyclones are going. So that little cone of probability is probably, let's say, maybe a 95% confidence interval. Well, sorry, I shouldn't say interval, but yeah, it's with a 95% confidence. If you were to get 100% confidence, the cone would span the circumference of the Earth. So <laughs> you can't always have 100% confidence. You have to you have to limit it down a bit. So that's why these models can be a bit wild. As Jim said, they've gone completely off the charts. Um, but that said, there's a, I guess if it was 95% confidence, it had a 5% chance to go off the charts. And guess what? It did. <laughs> That concludes the project brief for today. Uh, you can come and meet me in the next two weeks, next fortnight, where I will be talking about um, asteroids at home and where you can join and ask questions about asteroids at home, learn about asteroids, how we predict where asteroids are going to go and what you can do with your computer um, in researching asteroids. Uh, as always, if you don't have a good computer to run these climate models that we talked about today, you can always try out Zooniverse.org. I'm a passionate Zooniverse.org um, advocate, and it's a great way to do science without having a really beefy computer. You just get on and use your brain power. So anyway, have a good one, and uh, let's get on with the Boink Radio. Woo!